will be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Prior to praying over the passage before I read it, I want to share some words from a fellow hillbilly. Michael W. Smith grew up on the other side of the Ohio River from Lafon and myself. We were on the Ohio side. He was on the West Virginia side. And he wrote these words that I'm sure you've sung before. Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope, give us strength, help us cope. In this world, where'er we roam, ancient words will guide us home. Ancient words, ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Let us pray. Father, we come to you with needy hearts. We come from a world that is in turmoil. Some of us have come from a week that has been in turmoil, whether it's family or job or relationships or even our health. And Father, we need hope in order to cope. And we have the great example of the Apostle Paul and how that he, from a prison cell, was able to have the greatest of joy as he rejoiced in you. Father, help us to find our joy not in things, not in jobs, not even our health, but help us to find our joy in you and help us to have the same joyful praise that he had. And Father, I also want to pray on behalf of this church's shepherd. We pray, Lord, that you might lift Pastor Zach up and strengthen him physically, also spiritually. May you encourage him during this time. I pray that you would be with his wife, Chara, and the boys. Protect them. Bring them back to health so that they can serve this body as they have. We also pray, Father, for each and every person that is here and watching online, that while I may not be aware of the circumstances they're experiencing, may they know you know, and may they realize that the Holy Spirit will use the word this morning to encourage them and to lift their hearts to rejoice in the Lord. And we pray that. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. The title of the message today is Joyful Praise. We'll be reading from God's Word in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Let me outline the passage, and then we'll come back to that outline in just a moment as we make some background information about this passage. So if you would join with me, I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And I would like to say what uh, Pastor Stephen Alford used to say every time that he read God's Word. The Word 
of the Lord. This is God's inspired word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Amen. The reading of God's word. As I mentioned, I've been working on this as a uh, uh, predecessor for wherever God leads us to go next to encourage a congregation to find their joy in the Lord. I needed a title for this series. And in looking for a title for this series, I thought of the word unspeakable. Three different times in the King James translation, it talks about the unspeakable gift, the unspeakable words, and then Peter's great words about the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ joy unspeakable and full of glory. So Peter's talking about a joy that is unspeakable. If you look at the book of Philippians, you'll find that 19 times in four chapters, he uses some form of the word joy or rejoice, 19 times. This is a book about finding our joy in the Lord. Paul is talking about it. So it struck me, why don't we just cross out the U and the N and call this speakable joy, because Paul did speak about this joy that he found in the Lord. First, let me give you a definition for joy. Joy is the settled conviction that God is in control. Uh, Tim referenced uh, the sovereignty of God. We We could supply that word in here. Joy is the settled conviction that God is in control for our good, but for His glory. That's what joy is. Now, a companion word in the book of Philippians is the word mind or remember. It's used 16 times. So what we think, what we have as a mental outset, will affect our outcome. And if there's ever a book that illustrates What we think is what the outcome will be, it's the book of Philippians. Because Paul lived it by example, overcoming all kinds of unfortunate circumstances that he would not have chosen, and instead chose to have his joy in the Lord. Let me share three examples. First of all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 reads like this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy that was set before him. Now, if you go into chapter 2 in Philippians, you see that our Savior came from glory, came down into incarnation, and ultimately suffered the shame of the cross, and then was lifted up for exaltation. That's what we find in this passage. The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, the outlook of joy set before him, our outlook will affect our outcome. Another example is the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. If there was ever a book, and I implore you without me going into a lot of details, just go to Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 4 and it will tell you everything about what's going on in our country today. But basically it says the law is paralyzed and justice is not going forth. Tell me, shout it out, what investigation has ever brought a conviction? We've got to investigate. Well, we investigate, but then nothing ever happens. The law goes forth paralyzed, but it never happens. Justice never goes forth. And Habakkuk was really tore up about this, and he struggled with it. But once he saw that the Lord was on the throne, he said, let the earth be silent. In other words, once we realize that God is in control for our good and for his glory, just be quiet because he's got this. God has all control over all things. And here's what he says at the end of the book. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, or produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off in the fold, and there be no herds in the stall. Now you've got to realize in the Old Testament, the people of God, agriculture was everything. Now for Steve Slumbaum and for the Yoder family and others that are in the agricultural business, you know what I mean. It's everything. It's the barometer. But in this case, for Israel, how the crops and the cattle and the livestock were going was the barometer for their spiritual life. So he says, even though none of these things are there, this is what I'm going to do. I will rejoice in the Lord. What is he doing? His outlook is not going to affect his outcome. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. And the third example comes from the book of Philippians, Paul himself. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I have in my notes, win, win. Don't you hate it to be in these lose, lose situations? And you love to be in those win-win situations. You know, from my perspective, and this was in my last newsletter, you know, if, as a believer, if I get this virus and die, that's gain. That's a win. But if I don't die from it, that's a win too. It's a win-win situation. We have nothing to fear. My outlook will reflect the outcome of my life. Paul had many thieves for joy. Just in the book of Philippians, we see his circumstances. Verses 12 through 18, while he was in prison, there were other ministers taking advantage, working with improper motives, but he still had joy. In this book, people could not get along with each other. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Two ladies that were at odds with one another. They had worked together in the ministry of the gospel, and now they were not getting along. In this same book, he said, I've learned to be content. I don't need things. 
You see, things can be joy robbers. Wanting things can be a joy robber. Worry can be a joy robber. In chapter 4, verse 6, the anxiety that we have. You know, it's, it's been found that only 8% that the things we worry about ever come to pass. 8%. And we worry and we're anxious when, as a believer, we can have the joy of the Lord by trusting Him. And then finally, the legalist in chapter 3. When we face these situations, it's difficult to be optimistic. It just is. It'll soon be 34 years ago, January the 11th, 1987, is what is now known as the drive. The drive. In Cleveland, Ohio, the Denver Broncos were in town for the AFC Championship. Cleveland was ahead 20 to 13 with five minutes to go and had pinned Denver on their two-yard line. It was 98 yards away to be able to tie the game in order to go on to the Super Bowl. They get in the huddle, and one of their linemen, Keith Bishop, said this, Guys, we've got them right exactly where we want them. And their young quarterback, 27-year-old John Elway, led them on a 15-play drive down the field and scored with 30-some seconds on the clock to tie the game. Now, when I think of Keith Bishop, I think of him saying that with a lot of enthusiasm. Not like, you know, we got him right where we want. He was excited. This was an opportunity to go down the field and drive for the championship. And that's what they did. Now, he could have said this. You know, guys, it's been a really good year. Not many teams make it this far. Let's just run the ball, no passes. And guys, whatever you do, don't go out of bounds. We've got to keep the clock running. Let's just make it look good. Now, that's a defeatist attitude. But instead, he said, let's go for it. And they did. And later on, sorry, Frank, Cleveland lost in overtime with a field goal. Well, Paul had the same kind of situation. He was in jail. He was imprisoned. If you go to Acts chapter 28, you'll find that he was under house arrest. 24-7, he was manacled to a praetorian guard, changed every six hours, and those guys had to listen to him preach day in and day out, over and over. He used it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. We know that he faced possible execution. That's why he said, for me to live as Christ, but to die, if I'm executed, that would be to gain. We also know from chapter 1 and verse 30 that the ministry is a conflict. The actual word is agon. We get our word agony. It's uh, the same word that is used for wrestling. He said, the ministry is a wrestling match. And after 40 years, yeah, I would agree with that. It is. And yet, we come to this passage written by a man who shares many other things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about being beaten, about not sleeping, about being robbed, 
about being exposed to the cold. And then he adds this, and the anxiety for all the churches. Now, when you look at all these missionary journeys, three of them all together, he was in a lot of different places, a lot of different towns. Just go to Revelation chapter 2 and you see some of these churches like Ephesus. Just because he left doesn't mean he didn't care anymore. And when I come to the end of the message, I'm going to share something with you that is just really, really special. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to share uh, something very, very special that came to me the day after we arrived in Cairo after leaving here. And it will show you how much a shepherd should care, even though they're away. So we'll keep you on suspense for that, okay? So if I don't do that, you're going to have to rise up and say, hey, you're supposed to tell that story. So I will. Let's uh, dive into God's Word here. As I said earlier, verses 3 to 5 is a glowing appreciation. The Greek word here is Eucharist. Uh, The Catholic Church actually refers to the communion service as a Eucharist, but the same word is used in Luke 22 and other places for the communion, and sometimes we refer to it as a time of communion or thanksgiving, but the word here literally means a gratitude or an appreciation. When we have communion and we take those elements and we bite into that bread, it's a communion of gratitude that His body was given for us. And when we drink that cup, it's a communion of our spirit of thanksgiving that He gave His blood on our behalf. And Paul here is thankful in three different ways. First, as he remembered them. This was very common for Paul. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor uh, Zach would have shared with you Colossians 1.3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul was a Eucharist kind of pastor, thankful for the people in his life. Now, in the context here, it says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And the, the original language includes everybody. It's all inclusive. He was probably thinking of Lydia, Acts chapter 16, the seller of purple, this business lady who was redeemed by God's grace. He was probably thinking of this slave girl who was demon-possessed, who was radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was probably thinking of the Philippian jailer and his family, and even, yes, thinking of Yodia and Syntyche, the two ladies who were at odds with each other. He was also thinking, chapter 1, verse 1, of the saints and then the overseers and the deacons. Now, ministry can be tough. Not every single person leaves a shepherd with wonderful, glorious experiences. Some sheep are just a little more difficult than others, and some sheep are wonderful and great. I had this one lady in my uh, church in North Carolina. I told her, I said, if everybody was like you, I would be ruined. Because in her eyes, I was the greatest thing that ever walked this earth. And I had one of the greatest pieces of advice who came from a pastor in the Grand Rapids area. He said, 
Pastors, don't believe all of the praise given to you because you're not that good. And don't believe all the criticisms that's given to you because you're not that bad either. Just balance it out. And if this lady, if they were all like that, I, I, I would have been run because I could do no wrong. But there are people who, like Syntyche and Yodia, that are troublesome. And yet Paul is thankful for every one of them. John MacArthur has these words that I think are helpful. And I think it goes back to the joy that we find in the Lord. He says this, Having a genuine desire to remember and focus on the goodness, kindness, and successes of others does not involve denying their weaknesses and shortcomings, but rather looking past them. A person who constantly focuses on the negatives, faults, shortcomings, and slights of others is a person not, not controlled by the Holy Spirit. So Paul was able to look at all in a very positive way and be thankful for them. Let me just share this. This is just a little pastoral tidbit. Some of the best changes in my life have come from the critics. Maybe not right then, but over time, you know, I think they had a good point. And then I'll make some adjustments. So we need to be thankful for all people. The second way is he was thankful by praying for them. This same word is used two other times in the book, and it's really intercessory prayer. And I'm going to share with you very briefly what kind of prayer that I think Paul was praying for them. John Walvard, who was once the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote this, Paul dedicated many hours to prayer. In our day, I want you to listen to this, in our day when program, publicity, and promotion characterize the Lord's work, it is sometimes overlooked that without prayer, no eternal work can be accomplished for God. Amen. Prayer changes people. My mom, in vacation Bible school many, many years ago when I was a kid, had this plaque. And you probably heard this. It says, prayer changes things. Don't disagree with that necessarily, but I think the more important point would be prayer changes people. It changes our hearts. And Paul prayed for them. Epaphras, as you're going to find out in the series with Pastor Zach when you come to chapter 4, a guy who literally wrestled with God that the people would change their hearts we read this in chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras is always struggling, it's the word for wrestling, wrestling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, please don't misunderstand this. We should pray for people who have broken legs. We should pray for people who are looking for a job. We should pray for people who are looking for a, a place to live, a house. Those things are great. But far and above those things is that we are centered in the will of God. 
Epaphras wanted them to be in the will of God. Now let's go back to Philippians and see what kind of prayer Paul would have for them. All we have to do is jump up to verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now notice he didn't say, my prayer is that you will have this building program. No, that your love will grow with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, Paul's prayer as a shepherd was for them to spiritually grow deeper. And a third way that he was thankful was for their contribution, or I've called this uh, reciprocation. The word here is the word koinonia, fellowship. So when he says koinonia here, he's not talking just about kindred spirit. He's talking about financial support. Uh, I'm going to flip over here to Acts chapter 28 and share something uh, that is an insight here because Paul was under house arrest. And it says this at the very last of the book of Acts. Luke writes this. He lived there two whole years at his own expense. Now, what happens today when a person goes to prison? You pay the expense, not the prisoner. But then he had to pay his own way in the imprisonment. And then I want to share this before moving on because there's a really good piece of information that is also part of the book of Philippians. And he said he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Do you remember a month or six weeks ago? I was actually preaching at my last long-term church, Northland Community Church, on the very day that was kind of a showdown uh, for John MacArthur. You know, he had, he'd kind of laid down the gauntlet on the uh, meeting, and uh, there was uh, threats that he might get uh, in prison. And what, what did he say? I liked it. Bring it on. Because he'd just be able to preach the gospel. And folks, we might as well get ready for that because that's going to happen. Whether it's me or your pastor or a missionary, we're going to be facing some uh, tough times. And what do we do with those situations? We preach the gospel. So he's writing this letter literally as a missionary thank you for the support. Now, Tim read the passage in chapter 4, which adds context to the situation Years and years ago, Philippians had given to his ministry. Then there was this period of time, and we don't know why, but there was this period of time in which they didn't have the opportunity to give. Lo and behold, now comes Epaphroditus, who was going to risk his life to travel to Rome and to bring a gift, and so he's thanking them for this contribution that they gave to him. Secondly, we see in verse 6 a knowing anticipation. Now, I want to share something with you. I believe that we need to interpret God's Word, but we also need to apply God's Word. I first want to interpret God's Word because when we come to this verse, verse 6 
I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, in just a moment, because I want to give the gospel message for anyone here or watching online who does not know Jesus as their Savior. I want to give to you the gospel message by way of application. But if you read the context and you read chapter 4 and you understand that he's thanking them for the contribution, he's saying here by way of interpretation that you started a good work in contributing to my ministry financially, and I pray that you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now comes the application, and I'm sure you've heard this before. When you think of the different components of this, begun a good work, you think of justification. When you think will bring, you can think of sanctification. And when you think of the day of Christ, you can think of glorification. So let's just look at that for just a moment. Justification began a good work. Romans chapter 3, verse 24 says, We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Salvation was not worked for by any of these people. It was a gift. God's grace, by faith, alone. Now, you've heard me joke about the fact that there's only two kinds of people in this world, hillbillies and those who want to be. And I'm sorry that you all can't be hillbillies, but I am a hillbilly. But seriously, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those that are ready to meet God and those that are not ready to meet God. Those that are saved and those who are lost. And it all revolves around our commitment, our confidence, our faith and trust in how we get to God. It doesn't happen through the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments show us why we need Him. It doesn't happen by baptism. It doesn't happen by being born into a family. It doesn't happen by being grown up in a church like Grace Chapel. Folks, it happens because we come to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and justification through Him. So coming back to the two kinds of people, you'll notice in verse 1, he says, to all the saints. Well, the two kinds of people in this world are the saints and the ain'ts. And the ain'ts do not know the Lord as their Savior. And if you or anyone listening to this are one of the ain'ts, find your hope in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the sanctification process in bringing to conformity us to Jesus Christ. Notice in chapter 2 something very interesting. It's actually a twofold aspect. There's the divine aspect, and then there's the human aspect. Let me read verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, we're in chapter 2, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it's not not all up to you, because we notice in verse 13, for it is God who works in you 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God works in us, and we work it out. There is responsibility. If you look at all of the commands in the New Testament, they're commands for us to obey, and he even refers to that. And then lastly, until the day of Jesus Christ, the glorification process. And in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he talks about our citizenship is in heaven. You know, I referenced uh, during my time here a message that I did when I was at my last long-term church. I would do five or six messages a year on uh, current events. And one of those uh, current events was the difficulty it is to be a citizen of the United States and also a citizen of heaven. And if there's ever been a time where that's been difficult, it's right now. Folks, the citizenship we have in heaven far exceeds, far, just supersedes by far anything that we might experience and love about our citizenship on earth. And lastly, a showing of affection. In verses 7 and 8, Paul opens up his heart. He literally opens up his bowels. Literally. From the inside of my guts, I love you. Now, you heard me earlier reference Pastor Dave Durland speak about looking at you as a beautiful bride. The day after we arrived back to Michigan on July the 28th, I opened up my email account to find a letter from Pastor Dave. Now, I'm not going to share what he said, but they were very, very complimentary, thanking me for the time that I cared for this flock. Now, the reason I brought this up is this. At the time that he wrote that email, he had been gone from here 18 years. Now, he was thanking me, but my point in bringing this up, he really cares for you. He is so happy, and I am so happy for where you're at. And you have a pastor that preaches the word and loves you, and cares for you, and that the focus is upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. A a true shepherd feels that down in his heart, this care and desire. Now, let me share something for you here in, in this passage of Scripture as we look at the word partakers. It's actually a supercharged word for koinonia. It's literally soon koinonia. Now, we know koinonia is like a fellowship or a partnership, a participation together, but he adds the word soon because you are super partakers of what I do. So, what does he do? Well, he's imprisoned, but we know that he's apprehended for what? The gospel. God put him in prison so he could preach to all of these men that would come in. Secondly, They were partners with the defense of the gospel, the apologetics of the gospel. And thirdly, they were partakers of the affirmation 
of the gospel or the confirmation of the gospel. Folks, earlier in the service, you heard from a man and his wife who serve in the United States, but they prepare people to serve all over the world. They serve to help churches better reach out with the gospel. They are super fellowshippers of the gospel. When you contribute financially, when you pray, when you help in any way, anyone that is preaching the gospel, you are a super fellowshipper of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as there is 10 people for every man that's got a gun on the battlefield, there's more than likely about 10 people who are doing accounting or nursing or some other kind of role administratively for every missionary that's on the field. We're all together in the same work. So may I encourage you to affectionately love your shepherd as he loves you and to be super partakers in the gospel. As I close, just some questions to run by you. Are we with joy appreciative of the body that we fellowship with? This is not just superficial, but I mean, really, is there real joy appreciating your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Secondly, are we anticipating the completion of our salvation? If our eyes are on the election, if our eyes are upon our job, if our eyes are upon our house we're trying to build, and our eyes are not upon the end of our salvation, our eyes are not going to have the outlook of joy. Thirdly, are we affectionate for our brothers and sisters in Christ? And lastly, are we keeping the main thing the main thing? I want to share this before, before I uh, wrap this up. Six times in chapter 1 and nine times in the gospel of the book, or the, the book of Philippians, he references the gospel. It's important. The good news of Jesus Christ is important. And let me tell you, the enemy of our soul desires to get our eyes off of the main thing. The main thing for our existence is the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ to tell them how he died for them on the cross. I want to know, how many of you, how many watching online, have a situation in your life job loss, medical condition, a relationship that's broken. Maybe you're just going through a tough time, maybe depression, anxiety. And folks, Satan has got you pinned on the two-yard line. And it's a long, long ways to where you want to be. And the choice is yours. The outlook is ours. We can either say, Satan, I've got you right where I want you because God's on my side, and I am going to do this. The last slide, I am going to rejoice in the Lord, 
And Paul, for emphasis, said, and again, I say, rejoice in the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that your blessing would be upon your people as they have heard the word today. And Lord, you know uh, all details about our lives and where we're at. Whether you're an interim pastor waiting for the next assignment, that man needs to find his joy in the Lord, not the place that he's going to serve. Or if it's a person that's waiting for a job opportunity to come, that person needs to find their joy in you. Or if it's a person that is going through a a really tough medical situation, may they find their joy in you. And Lord, you know everybody, and you know where we're at, and, and May this message just encourage us to be a Paul so that no matter what has imprisoned us, we just continue to find our joy in you and preach the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be your light to a very, very dark world because the only hope is in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.